Good morning. Uh, welcome once again to Christ's Opinion Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are concluding our study in, on worship this, this Sunday. So this will be our last uh, sermon. And then after this, we're going to have a Sunday school class to kind of give you guys an opportunity to ask questions, also for us to help come alongside us as we think about worship with our children and our families. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the series that uh, we were canceling our children's church program, and we want to talk about what resources are available for families and for the church family as a whole uh, to help uh, our youngest among us. So with that, I just want to highlight a few things that we've been looking at. At the beginning of the series, uh, we focus on the object of our worship from Revelation chapter 5. We talked about how one of our fundamental problems is that we have a worship disorder, that it is not simply an issue of uh, um, uh, indifference, but that we're all worshipers. Every human being is a worshiper. And our fundamental problem is our worship disorder, that we worship self and the idols of our heart rather than the living God. And that at the end of the day, our Creator and our Redeemer is the object of our worship. Last week we looked at the how of worship. We talked about how God's Word alone defines how we are called to worship. And this week I want to close by thinking about us as worshipers. And, I, and I'm going to state at the outset, this is topical, and I may take some rabbit trails here and there to talk about some specifics, but... A lot of things I'm encouraging you to stay for Sunday school. I want to give you opportunity uh, to talk and to hear and to listen uh, about some of the specifics of how we worship at CCPC. Um, so this is a topical sermon, but we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter seven to talk about the who of worship. Who is it that worships? Um, so with that. Why don't we go ahead and read God's Word. We're looking at Revelation chapter 7. I want to go ahead and read the whole chapter. I know in your bulletins it begins uh, in chapter, uh, or in verse 9, but I'm going to start in verse 1. If you have your bulletins, you can follow along starting in verse 9. You can listen for the first, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them and we'll read uh, the whole of chapter 7. Again, we're entering into the, the misty veil world of Revelation. There'll be things here that I don't explain fully that you will have questions about, and I apologize, we'll set some of those things aside. You can ask me later. But hear God's word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their, their foreheads and I heard the number of the seal 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, from Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. They were all sealed. Skipped a little there, but it's 12,000 of each of those. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a vision. What a hope. As we look at your word today, seeking encouragement in the face of trial and tribulation, we ask that you would keep our hearts and our minds and our mouths, our lips fixed on the Lord. The good shepherd who protects and cares for us. Lord, I ask that you help me as I bring your word this morning. Forgive my sin. Use my words despite their weakness. By the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week at Community Group, I opened a can of worms. Uh, we'll call it the worship can of worms. And uh, we had a discussion, for those of you who were there. Um, I think it's fair to say that it was a lively and impassioned discussion. Uh, Is that a fair characterization for those of you present? And I appreciated it. Remember, I opened this series stating that I I suggested that if we were to take a poll of every single person in this room on their view of worship, we would come up with a different view for every single person. There would be some nuance. Some, you know, some of us might be more similar, but there would be nuances across the group. And so it was, I think, in our community group, it was representative of that. And it was helpful. It was a good discussion. You see, I think fundamentally, not only do we feel strongly about what constitutes good worship, because we're worshipers at heart. But we also come from a diversity of backgrounds, different cultures, different countries, different personalities, different experiences, different gifts. And yet, yet, when we come together, we come together as one. This is no easy thing. It's not easy. It's a hard thing. And I would say, apart from the gospel, a fairly impossible thing. 
the Apostle Paul, when he was exhorting the Corinthian church on the topic of worship, he had been talking about all sorts of things, about the body being all different parts. He was talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And in the midst of that whole section on worship, in the very center of it, in chapter 13, he says these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's maybe one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And in these timeless words, in the context of talking about worship, he said these because there was conflict about worship in the Bible. His most famous passage in all of his letters, right there in 1 Corinthians 13, was written in the context of worship, calling us, calling the church of Corinth to love. My encouragement to you may it never be said of CCPC that we are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. That's absolutely no statement on the instrumentation. <laughs> it's a statement about our hearts. Rather, this is my plea, let us come together in love and sing with one voice our song, which is Salvation belongs to our God. For this is the song of all of God's people. Everywhere, at every time, in every place, forevermore. I have to admit, as we move forward on this sermon, there's a lot, of, there's a lot in the text, there's a lot in my notes, and it may feel a little bit tangential at points. I just apologize. But hopefully it all springboards from this thing. This, this coming together in love with one voice lifting up this song of salvation. So I want to look at this in a few parts, three parts. First, who worships? That's sort of the main idea. Then I'll look at unity and diversity in worship. And then finally, uh, worshiping with faith, hope, and love. Worshiping with faith, hope, and love. First, who worships? As I've already noted in the first sermon, I think it's very difficult to enter into a study of the book of Revelation, so bear with me as I try to get some necessary context. Um, you'll remember what I said if you were here on my sermon on Revelation 5. You'll remember that there was a scroll with seven seals that couldn't be opened, right? Except by the Lamb who was slain, who came and opened the scrolls. In fact, the rest between chapter 4 and five, particularly chapter six, we have the opening of six of those seals. And then we come to the seventh seal here in chapter seven. 
And you'll remember that that scroll represented, if you will, the plans of God's redemptive story and the execution of those plans. That was the opening of those scrolls was, or the opening of those seals on that scroll was the, was the, the, the Lamb of God executing God's plan. And you'll also remember I said something about interpreting Revelation, and there are various interpretations. I'm fully aware of this. The interpretation stream that I'm following is that there are this is cosmic history, if you will, starting at the, the coming of the Lord Jesus in the first advent and the coming of the Lord Jesus in the second advent. And that this story of the coming of Jesus in the first advent and second advent gets retold seven times throughout this, this revelation. And this is the second if you will, cycle. We can go into all of that at some point. Maybe we'll study the book of Revelation as we have opportunity. But just go with me on this. But here at the beginning of chapter 7, just as the seventh seal, called the seal of the living God, was about to be opened, and judgment was about to rain down on the earth, an angel called out and said, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then he says, And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There's so much here. I'm not going to have time to prove everything. I'm just going to state things. If you have questions, you can come to me afterward. But I want to kind of identify some of the things that, that are being said here. First, what is this idea of the sealing of the servants? So we have the seal that's being opened, and then there's this talk about sealing the servants and putting the seal on their foreheads. What is, what is this all about? Well, I think first the servants of God are simply uh, those who believe. That's it. It's pretty basic. They are sealed meaning they are kept secure and they are marked as belonging to God. And we have this kind of language elsewhere in Scripture. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So remember, this is cosmic history, kind of in a nutshell here in, these, in, in Revelation. And what... what what the picture that is being painted is the angel is saying, until everyone is sealed, until all of God's people are sealed and, and separated out and collected up and taken up, don't bring the judgment. Don't bring the judgment. It's a picture of God withholding the day of His coming until all His servants, all His people, that's why in 2 Peter you have that beautiful passage that says the patience of the Lord is salvation, right? This is, this is your hope that, that for, the, for the lost who are still to hear the gospel, there's time. Second thing that we see here is the 144,000. Well, what is the 144,000? I think it's simply a representative number of all of God's people. Though here in Revelation it picks up the language of the tribes of Israel, I think we can understand this to include all true Israel, all who trusted in the Lord Jesus, all God's peoples. One verse says servants, here it says 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. 
the Simpsons Church. And we get this a little bit from verse 9, which is the text that begins our text, where it says, All these people are as this great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and from all the peoples and all the languages. So, all right, so there, there's my brief analysis of the text. But the end goal of the sealing of the servants. The, the goal is of putting that mark of the Holy Spirit on them is that they might be gathered up to be worshipers around the throne of God. That's the goal. That's the aim. As one people. Okay. When we come into verses 9 and following, kind of skip over the judgment a little bit. That, there'll, there'll be another cycle, if you will, that kind of goes deeply into this judgment as we move forward in the book of Revelation. You, know, you, can, you can read about the, 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 the final, uh, if you will, uh, white horse and his rider coming and bringing judgment. But here, we jump right into that glorious throne room when God's people are all gathered at the end of days. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation all gathered around the throne. This is that eschatological, we use a big word, worship. End times worship. Worship at the end of days when the new heavens and the new earth appear. And who worships on that last great day? All God's people from all places and all times who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's who's gathered around that throne. But what is this future glory worship by this great throng gathered around the throne have to do with worship here and now in this place? What does that, that vision there have to do with now? Because it's pretty remote, pretty foreign, pretty different than our own experience. Well, this is, this is what I think it has to do with the here and now of worship. Everything has everything to do with what we do here and now. What we do today may be small, may be tiny, may be minuscule compared to that great day, but what we do is meant to be a foretaste. As we come together and worship, it's like what one of my seminary professors called worship outpost. It's like an outpost of heaven right here in West Hartford, Connecticut. This is, this is heaven here on earth. Or you might say, here we are. We're gathered up into heaven. Hebrews 12, 22 and following. I read a little bit of this last week. But... But Hebrews 12, if you have your Bibles, you can follow if you want. But it's Hebrews 12, 22. He was, the writer of Hebrews is distinguishing between the earthly worship of the Old Testament when they approached, approached the, the cloud uh, at Mount Sinai. But he says this, but you've come to Mount Zion. He's talking to these saints that are alive in the day you know, following the resurrection in that early church. The writer of Hebrews is saying, but you, you... You know, people here in Judea, Samaria, wherever they are, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the 
innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Later he says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Don't miss it. What we are doing now is no less than what we will do in glory in terms of the substance of the matter. We, as we come together as God's people, we are gathered before the Lamb and before His throne. And when we come together, we are approaching God Almighty. There is a great heavenly host of witnesses who is gathered with us today. Here we are. But another fundamental aspect of that future worship that impacts our worship today is the breadth. Is the breadth of the people who worship. People from all over. Christ himself ascends to the Father. You ever wonder why did Jesus ascend? Why didn't he just stay on earth? Ever, ever like, well, why didn't he just stay? He could have ushered in the kingdom and done everything, but he, he actually says, no, if I don't go, my spirit won't come. He says this in John 16. This is the purpose for his leaving. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and He will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What Jesus is saying is, I need to go so that my, my truth, my word, my kingdom can go out into all the world. It's not going to just stay here localized in Jerusalem and Judea. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. And so what does He say in Matthew 28? He says to the church, to those apostles, he says, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them all that I command, command you. So, if this expansive kingdom movement is part of our goal as a church, then how do we best reflect that here? when we come together, as we gather. Well, let me give you a few ideas. First and foremost, we preach the gospel. Paul, in contemplating the expansion of the gospel to not only Jews but to Gentiles alike, says this concerning the importance of proclamation. He says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news?
First and foremost, what we do as part of worship is proclaim the good news. Nothing, nothing less than Christ and Him crucified. So it's my goal, though I know my own frailty and limitations very really, to always preach the Word, the Gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is clear as best as I know so that people can understand. Not only do we try to clearly preach the good news of Jesus Christ, but we, <clears throat> we offer the gospel freely. There's no Jesus plus, right? We talked about that in Galatians. We offer the gospel. What is the gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Repent and believe and you will be saved. That's a promise. Trust in Him. We also make no distinction of persons to whom we offer that gospel, young and old alike, rich and poor, male, female, slave free, as Paul says in Galatians. No distinction. One time I was uh, at a church, and at this church I was uh, in the back, I was in the foyer of the church. And there were doors that kind of went out to the, to the main street, and there was a bus stop on the main street. And so this was a church that often got people kind of wandering in. That's good. One Sunday morning, somebody wandered in who didn't look like the rest of the church. And I remember sitting there, I was young, and I, I remember sitting there and being excited. There was this person that didn't look like the rest of the church coming in, and I, I, I was watching from the back, and I watched. As one of one person cut him off and sent him away. Broke my heart. I ran after the guy. Ran after him. Without distinction. Not only do we preach the gospel week in and week out that people might come to faith, but we support and pray for our missionaries both locally and across the globe. And so each week you'll hear us praying for our missionaries. And it's not just because we like them, because we do. We love them. But because we believe it is central to who we are as a church, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. So we support that work that goes and spreads the gospel out. Not only do we strive to preach the gospel and strive to share the gospel with our neighbors in the world, but we try to remove barriers and as much as we are able to encourage people to join in worship. Now i got to make a quick caveat because some of you, this, this might cause some alarm bells to be raised. You might construe my words as promoting something like a seeker-sensitive worship style. Right? I want to lay your fears. Seeker-sensitive worship as it's Traditionally, traditionally, that's funny, but secret sense of worship removes often the very substance of worship, not addressing issues that are central, like sin or areas of theology that might be difficult or contentious. It puts the focus on making people feel comfortable, and there's very little reverence, there's very little awe. So one of my former pastors used to say, when we talk about issues of worship and preaching, he says, what you save them with, you save them to. So if you want 
If you preach a light gospel, you'll get light Christians. That's not what I mean about removing barriers. Going back to last week, we we're going to worship always according to the word. Positively, that means preaching and teaching and reading and singing and praying, etc. The whole counsel of God. There's no good news unless you hear the bad news. That you're a sinner. We're not going to shy away from that. We're not going to shy away from tough passages and difficult topics. The gospel offends by its very nature. And we want to lift hearts to God. But there are barriers, I think, that we can remove or try to remove that have nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing. So one tangible example of this that I've already brought up is that for our littlest among us, as I've already mentioned, we're canceling children's church. And with that, there comes challenges, right? There's challenges that come alongside that for people to worship, right? So parents now have a challenge. They have their little ones by their side. Some are easy. Some, not so easy. As parents, we know this. It's hard for others, there may be noise and disruptions and people getting about and moving to take care of things. So we need to find ways to help us to worship. And we'll talk about those come Sunday school. So you have to sit back. The ways that we can come alongside those parents and those children and as a family, as a body, we come alongside them and consider how do we remove barriers to worship for our littlest ones? and for their parents, and for those of us who may struggle when there's distraction. But there are many areas that we need to consider more fully. We can't go into all of them in the sermon. Maybe we can talk about them. For example, how do we make CCPC a place for persons with disability? Make it easy for people to come in situation that is probably some of the hardest types of situation we will enter. How do we care for the elderly? The shut-in when it comes to worship. What about the poor? About that example of that fellow who came into the service of that church that I was at? Like, how do we make it a place that they're welcome? There's no barrier. What are the unspoken things that make it feel uncomfortable that have nothing to do with the gospel. How do we welcome people in? What about people from different cultures, languages, backgrounds? These are difficult things to think about. And, and I want to talk about our unity and diversity in worship in just a minute. But for right now, my main concern is that we have a big vision on who we're inviting into worship. Now, I don't want you to confuse matters. God's people are the worshipers. Worship is meant for the people of God, and so we're not going to make worship for those who are outside of it. The worship is defined by God, and how we lift up our praises and our, and our worship to God is defined by Him, and so is for His people. But we ought to make it a place that is a refuge for the rest. Can we make it a refuge for the rest? One thing that I like in our bulletin is that we explain some of the elements of our worship in the margin for folks who might be unfamiliar. Sometimes the worship leader will explain one of those elements. So things that we do to try to accommodate. One challenge 
that was expressed in our community group in regards to worship has to do with our space. This is not the ideal worship space, but this is God's providential space, and I'm grateful to God for it. It's wonderful. But there are challenges to it, and one of it is that when we come in, this is an everything space. This is our fellowship space. This is our children's space. This is our worship space. And it's very hard for us to transition from having coffee and getting having in very important conversations with one another to entering into a time of reflective worship. It's hard to prepare our hearts for it. One of the suggestions that uh, was given, and I think was great, was what if we had a musical prelude that encouraged folks to quiet them? Seems like an obvious no-brainer. We have transition time. Oh no, these are things that we can think about. What does it mean to remove barriers to worship? And that includes preparing our hearts and letting ourselves for worship. But at the very heart of all of our considerations of how to make worship more reflective of that great throne room, that gathering, what's required above all is great love and compassion. I think it's why Paul stopped his discussion on worship with the Corinthians to talk about love. It's the essential component without which we fall back into our preoccupation with ourselves, what we like, what we enjoy, what we want, what our experience ought to be like. And unless our eyes are fixed on loving God and loving one another as we worship, then we'll struggle. I realize that there's much more to be said. So we're going to move on. If you have other questions with regard to the who of worship, uh, bring it up in the class. But now I want to briefly look at the issue of unity and diversity within the context of our worship. Um, there are two things in this text, in Revelation chapter 17, I mean 7. Uh, the two things that struck me about this group of worshipers. The first was that the text says they were crying out with a loud voice. They were singing together one song. It's really interesting. They, plural, cried out with a, a singular, loud voice. It was a singular Voice belonging to the whole. What's so compelling about this is that there is no divergence, no wavering, nothing unsettled and uncertain in their song. It was unified and loud and together. Now, of course, we're not in that place, right? We're not in glory. We're not yet perfected when all our voices, man, maybe they'll work perfectly. And imagine that day when we can sing like the angels. But I want to remind you, included in this glorious host that's here written for us in verses 9 and 10, included in this glorious host is you. Believe me. It's me. All of us. We're represented there. What a glorious thought that we are included in that chorus and we have hope of, of our voices resonating and resounding perfectly to the glory of God. I look forward to that day and I realize that one of the challenges that we face this side of the glory is that we bring all of our stuff, all of our preferences, all of our experiences, all of our baggage, all of our sin, all of our sorrow, all of our trouble 
to worship. We come into this place and we bring it home. So to use another theological idea of the already and the not yet, we live in the not yet and our worship is marked by the not yet. Our prayers, they are sometimes and often timid and weak. Our preaching is often rambling and unclear. Our readings might be stilted. Our confessions might be lackluster. Our singing might be offbeat and off-key. And our offerings might be half-hearted. And our communing might be absent-minded. This is the already. I mean, this is the not yet. And yet, we come together. To me, this is what makes church one of the most amazing pictures of the Spirit's power and grace. With all our differences, with all our struggles, with all our trials and sins, we still come together and picture, in our minuscule way, that glorious throne scene. We do it. A motley crew of God's redeemed. That's what we are. A motley crew of God's redeemed. And we strive together to make that song to sing with one voice. And we do. By the grace of the Holy Spirit who meets us and empowers us and draws us together in all our diversity, He brings us and makes us one. You look around this church and you think of all the differences you have with your brother and sister. The truth is, you are united for eternity. That is something that is Guaranteed. One of the reasons we confess our faith every week with these old creeds and confessions is that in speaking with one voice what we hold to be true, we join our voices not just with each other, but with the voices of the saints across the globe and throughout time that salvation belongs to our country. You ever wonder why we do that? That's why. We are one. Yet there's something else here that we see in the text, and that is the diversity of the group. You can't escape it. There are people from all tribes, peoples, and languages. Which makes the oneness of their voice all that much more remarkable. I don't know what that's going to look like. I have no idea what it's going to sound like. How exactly the diversity will be expressed in glory, I don't know, but considering the diversity of the people whom God has created and redeemed and the amazing diversity that we see throughout His creation, I can't help but imagine that that diversity will be expressed in worship in some form or measure. I just don't know how that appears. But how does it impact us now? In this place? In this time? What does it mean well, to remind us of last week, what it doesn't mean, not, it does not mean that we change up our elements. Meaning, we talked about the regulative principle and talked about the difference between elements and forms and circumstances. Elements being those scriptural things that we're all called to do. We read, preach, and confess scripture. We pray, we sing, we give offerings and tithes, we administer the sacraments, and we make oaths and vows as occasion permits. Those things never change. But the question is, how do we do this? What form does it take? What are the circumstances that take these forms? This is where our distinctiveness as a church gets expressed. 
as we apply wisdom and worship. There are many things, many things that inform uh, these decisions that the elders make with regard to worship. And, and I'm not going to be able to go into everything, but here are some of the things that go into the decision-making process, process. And this is the stuff that I really want to have you guys ask about when we get to the class after the worship service. Um, but things that inform us is Scripture first. The examples that we see in Scripture informs how we structure our service. Our theological convictions inform us and in how the elements will be take, will, will take. Our Presbyterian history and tradition informs us. It's not the ultimate or the only thing, but it informs us. It's part of our story, and, and we honor that, and we connect ourselves to those saints who've gone before us. We do things decently and in order. That's part of our love. We love 1 Corinthians uh, verse on this, do everything decently and in order. We try to do everything. But there are other things that we also ought to consider. How does this space conducive to worship? What type of gifts are in the body as far as music is concerned? What are the various aims that we have in terms of, in terms of expression? Maybe, maybe, and I would say this is probably one of the things that I want to talk a little bit about, is that the primary worshipers are out there, not up here. This is who worships. The people, they worship alongside us because they're a part of us. But what I mean is, one of the things that informs how we structure our worship service is that it's not about the worshipers up front, but it's about God and us as God's people coming together. How does our cultural background inform us? How do we connect to the past and how do we connect to the present in our worship? and the choice of music, and the choice of prayers, and the choice of singing, and reading, and all of that. How do we connect ourselves to both the church, as we say, the church triumphant, as called before, and the church present, is here. How do we reflect the cultural diversity? Those are things that we consider. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, All those things, we try to do them as best as we're able to reflect the diversity of our body and the diversity of the church as we consider the breadth of God's church and we come together and we do it according, according to the best wisdom that we have. At the end of the day, it comes back down to that call by the Apostle Paul to love. There are going to be things done in the worship service that you don't like, that are uncomfortable, that you have not experienced. And I want to encourage you, as you consider what it means to worship God, is to consider letting go of yourself and putting yourself under God and His Word and considering the person next to you. Let's tease a little bit more of that out in the Sunday School class, but I want to close. We are, we, are, we are pressing along the time. I want to close. At the end of the day, none of us would be worshipers of God apart from the Lamb. One of the things that is really funny in this text is when the, uh, the, one of the uh, uh, elders addressed John saying, 
Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And that was the most rhetorical question, right? Of course the elder knows. Of course. But he's drawing attention. He's taking John's eyes and saying, look at these people that are gathered around the throne. Who are they? John is like, sir, you know. And he says to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Another way to put that is, these are the saints. This is us. There are those of us who have gone before who faced far greater tribulation than we have faced. There are those who live today on this earth who face far greater tribulation than we do today for their faith. But we do face tribulation, triumph, heartache, pain, this side of glory. And what the elder is saying is, here is the hope. Here it is. They've come through the fire and the flame and they have entered into the throne room of God and they are secure. Notice what he says. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They've gone through it. They've faced all sorts of pain. I know many of your stories and I know the kind of hardship and heartache that many of you have had. There's hope of a future glory where you are sheltered under the presence of Jesus Christ where there is no more hunger. There's no more thirst. There's no more sun that can burn you and strike you by day or any scorching heat. For the Lamb of God is your shepherd. He'll guide you to springs of living water. And you'll never thirst again. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. So we come together and worship. The very heart of it. In all of our diversity and all the struggles we have as we come together as a, as a broken people full of our own trials and tribulations and sin as we come into this place, I want you to fix your eyes on that hope that we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the lamb who is slain, who has covered you and washed you in his blood, that you are now clean and pure and spotless. As you struggle, even as you come to worship and you are disheartened by the world around you, fix your eyes on the lamb. The one who's taken away your guilt and your sin. Hope. There's nothing in this text other than that. It's hope. It's to say there's tribulation and there's hope. Looking forward to that horizon of glory where we may struggle here to sing and to pray and to preach and to read and to worship. There's hope in a time and a place when our worship will be pure. Not because we're pure, but because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And love.
There's love here. First, there's love of God for the redeemed. He laid down his life. Not because they were clean, not because they deserved it, but because he loved them. Because of that, we love God. He loved us first, and so we love him, and our worship to him is not fundamentally about our experience, but it is about loving God. And in that, we experience his love. Finally, it's to love one another. As we come into worship, as we come together as God's redeemed, we all come together with the same clothing, with the same righteous robes, washed, cleansed, and ready for glory. So we can come together and we can lay down all of our idols, all of the things that we think are so precious to us that if we don't have, that will somehow be destroyed. We can lay those down and we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who's gone before us, and we can bind our arms with one another in love and run that race while that great cloud of witnesses cheers us on. All praise be to Jesus. As you consider to worship, may it be your song. May this be our song. Salvation belongs to our God. Let's sing that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.